0: Ministers, um, how do I say this, uh, are often underpaid and under-resourced. Um, you've got people who've graduated from seminary with a great amount of debt and then they're working under, underpaid in, in congregations. What, what's your advice for, for them as, as they have families and financial responsibilities that might be overwhelmed with this idea of, of a generous reality? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Amy Hill, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to and island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704 406-3205 and visit gardner-web.edu Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Andrew Bignair. He is the founder of Swan Capital a wealth management firm, the host of the Rich, Young, and Powerful Podcast He's also the author of Tithe A Living Testimony and Don't Be a Pennywise and Dollar Foolish Andrew, thank you for joining the conversation I'm so excited to be here we're going to get to the new book here in just a second. But uh tell us a little bit about uh Swan Capital. This is this is a wealth management firm you started. Um I'm I'm looking at you. We look about the same age. Um I'm starting to feel ashamed of what I've accomplished in my life. Uh so how did how did you get this thing started?
1: Oh, well, don't do that. Um at 14, I was handed a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And um, that book really flipped my world upside down. Um, I came from a, just, a, just a common middle class family, and I really connected that with that book. My dad was a government worker, and I thought, wow, I could make money while I was sleeping. Now, little did I know that book was actually going to ignite my interest in finance, but it was also created a a sin part of my life that I didn't know would take a stronghold, and that was greed. It started egging me on to work harder, make more, and by 16, by waiting tables at Denny's, interning at a financial firm Monday through Friday, so after school every day, and then on the weekends I'd wait tables at Denny's, I'd saved up $62,000 not bad for a punk kid, right? And what I didn't know was 2008 was about to happen. And I took my $62,000 and stuck it in the stock market, and it doubled to $142,000. So here I am, and this, this little devil over my shoulders just egging me on to make more, work harder. Is that all you have accumulated? And I just kept on making more riskier, riskier investments. And luckily, maybe fortunately, I lost Everything and so as I was screaming into my pillow and punching my mattress as hard as I could, I was broken because I had connected my self worth with my net worth, and now I was bankrupt in both emotionally, spiritually, and financially. And just like you know how sin is, is once it uh, you know left me, um, it was nowhere to be found. It would egg me on all the time, and then it moved on to its next victim. And I just I thought if I ever do this differently, I'm going to do it completely different. Of course, I'm going to make better. Investment decisions be diversified, but I can't lose what I've given away, and that's what the Lord showed me is that yes, you can lose it towards bad investments, you can lose it by spending too much, but you can't lose what you've given away, and that was uh, how in the beginning Swan Capital started was to help families not make those bad financial decisions. But this set me on this journey to later write the Giving Crisis because my next financial decade I did it completely different as I increased my income. Has business prospered? I actually started increasing my tithe from 10% to 11 to 12% to 20 And then today, and this is what we teach other families to do, is to continue increasing your giving. So now that I get 50% of my income away, we save and invest 30%, and we live off 20%. So we're headed towards reverse tithing, and that's what we try to teach other families.
0: So I'm fascinated by the title of your podcast, Rich, Young, and Powerful.
1: Uh, tell us about the vision behind it. It is the ultimate bait and switch. And I feel uh, no hard feelings about uh, doing a bait and switch. A lot of people are seeking after uh, being rich. They're seeking after feeling young and looking young. And they're also seeking after, uh, you know, influence and they want to be famous and they want to be powerful. And the Gospels offer a complete paradox to that, and the rich young ruler is a great example of this who approached uh, Jesus sincerely looking for eternal life and walks away sorrowful. And he walks away with all of his money, which at first would sound like you know, the ending of a great uh, financial thriller movie, but he walks away sorrowful. From from the Messiah, he walks away uh, from Jesus, completely sorrowful, and and it says that Jesus loved him because he loved him, but he couldn't let go of his earthly treasure and convert it to eternal treasure by giving it to the poor and following him. And so, I actually have the pleasure of. Um, interviewing people from Craig Rochelle and David Platt, who are pastors, to athletes, to musicians like Danny Goki and Chris Tomlin to hear about their story and how they're using their resources and their talents and and using all of this for an eternal kingdom to come. And so that's what I I love doing on the podcast is just highlighting these great ministries and missions.
0: So you have this new book, The Giving Crisis. This book examines how organizational leaders can help average givers become everyday uh, philanthropic. Um, you wrote, the inability or our unwillingness of Christians to give financially is hurting our churches and communities as a whole. Um, you've been in those financial meetings. You've had to make those tough calls, what programs to cut, what services to prioritize. Uh, this begins with your own journey around giving, um, you know, the giving crisis, walk us through your story as it's interwoven in this book.
1: Yeah. So, um, you'll hear the whole story, but the short story is, is after I'd lost everything, um, at 19, screaming into my pillow, crying into my mattress that I'd lost everything. Um, the best opportunity happened. My, my grandfather, Uh, was a bachelor now. He had been married for 60-plus years, and sadly my grandmother had passed away, and I was the only other bachelor in the family. And my mother said, hey, it would really help the family if you could go live with your grandfather for a year. And I was like, oh, gosh, the shag carpet, the yellow toilet, the yellow shower from the 1970s. I don't know about that. And And she's like, it'll really help him. And so I thought I was doing a good deed, but little did I know he didn't need me. I needed him, and he taught me some just priceless wisdom keys, but he also took me back to the Great Depression since he lived through it, and he shared with me how in the Great Depression with over 25 percent unemployment that they were more generous during the Great Depression with people literally in soup lines than we are in the Great Expansion, and I just couldn't wrap my mind around how we have double incomes here in the United States. We actually, according to inflation per capita percentage adjusted for inflation, we have more income. We're making more, and we've prospered as a nation. There's no reason why we shouldn't be more generous. We're actually less generous. Instead of giving 3% of our income, we give less than 2 if we give at all, and we know that only uh, 5% of Christians actually tithe. And I thought this is a this is an epidemic. This is a giving crisis that we need to talk to. And and this is and this is controversial. But I believe the anxiety and the depression that's on the rise, even though houses are 32 percent bigger and everyone's got a TV and everyone's got a phone and and there's less financial worries per person. I mean, everyone's got some sort of financial concern. Anxiety and depression are still on the rise because we've made it all about our expectations, and and comparison really is the thief of joy. It's stealing our joy. So
0: let's go back to that, that first quote and two words from it. You wrote about the inability and the unwillingness of Christians to give. Um,
1: what do you mean by this? Well, I think we have to go back to Scripture. We can't You say, well, this scripture, I really like this one, but this scripture, I don't know about this one. We can't cut pages out of the Bible. The Bible is very clear about stewardship, biblical stewardship. It's very clear about tithing that this isn't varsity material for the Christian to give. No, I mean it's it's what should happen right at salvation. We see that with Zacchaeus. We see that with the early church. We see that once someone comes to salvation and they believe and start following Jesus, they should be sacrificial. They should die to themselves and take up their own cross, and it should be easy to let these things go because of the gratitude we have for salvation. And so we should let things go by the wayside um, that are not kingdom-building And so when I see the unwillingness to tithe 10% of our income, uh, it just makes me say, hey, Let me shake you as a fellow brother and sister in Christ, and let me show you where the scripture says that we have to be a generous people, and we should be marked by generosity. Our generosity should be a testimony. It should be light and salt, so much like the first century church that people are curious. They're saying, what's with this guy and gal? They're giving all of that they have. I mean we got to tell them to stop giving because they're so sacrificial. That – would actually be such a testimony that people would say, I need to find out more about this Christianity. I don't know why they're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. I don't know why they don't have financial worries. I mean they're not even rich. They're not even uh, worried about having the nicer car. They're worried about giving more. That's a testimony.
0: You wrote, if you were to compare the bank statements and credit card statements between believers and non-believers today, you would be hard-pressed to see the difference. Look deeper in the account balance and into behavior surrounding spending habits, and sadly, you wouldn't find much difference with the rest of the world. Take us a little deeper here.
1: Yeah, I think you can look at someone's calendar. You can look at someone's checking account, and you can look at someone's anxiety and usually, you can find out a lot about that person. I don't even have to meet them. If you send me their calendar, you send me their bank statements, and you send me uh, you know, what they're concerned about, I can tell you a lot about that person very quickly. And I love what David Platt says. I'll give him the credit for this. He says if they wear an Alabama jersey on their bank statement, they have Alabama tickets coming out that cost you know three or $400 these days at least, and – he says they're worried about who's going to win on Saturday. They're probably an Alabama fan, and they're probably a college uh, football Alabama fan. And I thought that is so true with our finances. And and this is nothing new. Jesus talked about. It. He says where your treasure is, there is your heart. Also, if my heart is connected to what Jesus tells us is the most important, which is the orphan, the widow, the sojourner, the least of these, in the unreached people groups, because that's what he's given us, this uh, very big charge with the Great Commission, to go out to the byways and the highways to go find those who don't know about me. My finances should reflect that, and my calendar should reflect that. And so that's why I believe tithing begins with the first fruits. The first dollar doesn't go to my mortgage. The first doesn't go to provide for my family. The first goes back to the the provider that gave it to me.
0: You obviously uh, take a look at what you're calling a giving crisis, but let's take a step back and look at the the facts and trends. Um, are we able to track the the giving trends across the years within mainline congregations? And if so, what does it tell us?
1: It, it tells us simply that our earnings have not increased as fast as our expectations. We know that people live in a house that's 32% bigger than it was 60 years ago. We understand that uh, what used to be the family car is everyone gets a car, Um, and what used to be what we would call discretionary is becoming mandatory. And that's not how it should be for the, the believer. They should stand out, and they should stand out financially as radical, and that's what I want to be marked as. I, I, I almost actually made the book title Radical Generosity. I want people to look at my finances and say, as a financial guy, it doesn't make sense what you're telling people to do. You're, you're supposed to tell people to invest in your hedge fund. You're supposed to tell people to invest in your portfolios, but you're telling them to give their money away. And that's why I want people to be so curious, and I want our clients and I I want the families that read our book uh, to say, yeah, that's – I'm going to dedicate my life to not continuing to increase my expectations. I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say my family doesn't need more than $60,000. We don't need more than $150,000, whatever that line is in the sand, and as – we work harder because we work unto the Lord. We work really hard in our jobs. As we get promotions and pay raises and cost of living adjustments, I wanna say that 4% cost of living adjustment, I'm gonna make a deal with myself. I'm, I'm not gonna spend the entire 4% like I have been for the last decade. What I'm going to do is do 2% more to God. I'm gonna do 2% to my family or I'm gonna do 2% to God. I'm gonna do 1% to me and 1% to the future me. I'm gonna increase my, my uh, investing, 1% more. And I think if we did that over the next decade, the trend would show a church that is radically generous, and we would see uh, more unreached people groups being reached, and we would see a financially healthy uh, believer that's investing the right amount. And then we would see someone that's also happy because they're enjoying the 70% that's left over to spend.
0: We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative, The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. You know, I've served both as local church and as denominational leader, and um you know, we oftentimes don't have conversations with church members about giving as in like specific church members about what they are giving. Um, you know, I was trained in seminary um, that you shouldn't look at the giving books, um, but I should be aware of who the top contributors are. Um, you know, so that kind of leads into most ministers when they talk about tithing, which is typically the only thing they talk about. And we'll get to the other aspects of finances here in just a second. Um you know, it's it's kind of a one-off thing, or um, you know, uh, a campaign Sunday in which they're encouraging people to give. What are some of the most common reasons you think um, people aren't giving to the church? You know, what are the common? I don't want to use the word excuses, but common things people lean on most when they indicate that they're not giving what they think they should to the church.
1: Yeah, I got a whole section in the book that talks about all the excuses that people give for uh, not tithing. Um, But I think it goes back to that mindset and the culture within the church. Why is it taboo? Why can we talk about people's addiction to pornography, addiction to um, cheat on their spouse? We can talk about some heavyweight issues inside a Bible study, a church group at, at the pulpit. And I think some of the reasons why it's not talked about because every time the pastor talks about it, they think that they're talking about it for their own selfish reasons to, you know, garner uh, for a building campaign. But that that's not what it should be about. And obviously, for most pastors, it's not what it's about. They're just preaching what Jesus talked about. I mean, if the percentage ratio of Jesus talking about money, it wouldn't wouldn't be once a year on Sunday. It'd probably be every one out of five sermons would be talking about money or using money as a theme because that's how Jesus. If we were following his example in preaching, it would be more like a ratio of 1 to 5, uh, not 1 out of 52, and that's what I'm here to try to change. My, my background is finance. you know, Managing a hedge fund and having a wealth management firm, it gives me a unique perspective to talk about what pastors oftentimes can't is I can talk to that believer because I'm not uh, a pastor, and I can say, here's what the Bible says. And the Bible is very clear. It's not open to interpretation. And with grace, the bar has been raised. Tithing is the floor not the ceiling. And so we need to start dedicating our finances and letting the Lord into not just one area of our life, but into all of our areas of life. And so again, I, I think the mindset has to change. Um, I, I've, I said this recently today, um, as someone was talking about addiction, I said, we can talk about a lot of addictions in in, in study groups, and Bible study, which we should, the church should be talking about this. But workaholism is the only uh, addiction. I know that people will applaud you all the way to your brokenness. And they'll applaud you as hard you work. the The more you make, the more you should spend. and And sadly, that's not worked too well out for the American population. Another aspect
0: of of the shift in giving has has also to do with the local church's vision and and mission. Um, Gen Xers and young younger generations are, Drastically different than the generations before them and what they believe the church's role should be in the world, especially when it comes to, to meeting the needs of the community of, um, you know, challenging systemic injustices of, of creating more equitable future for the world as seen through through Jesus and the gospel. What's the correlation between local churches failing to fulfill the gospel vision and a reallocation of gifts towards, you know, other nonprofits that are maybe doing this type of work in the world?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we cannot let any generation settle coming to church for an easy consumerism, easy believism, because that's not what Christ, how he preached. I mean, he said some hard words in the Bible, and and you can see that the crowds uh, that he garnered that came around him, and then he would start laying down some tough gospel truths, and and people said even the disciples, this is hard for us to hear. But it's what you need to hear, is that you're coming to a church for hopefully peace and joy that you'll find through the gospel, but – to just come in here as a consumerism and say, what can I get from my church is the wrong attitude. It's what can I give to my church? What talents, resources, platform, what finances can I dedicate towards unreached people groups? And that's where my heart is, is there shouldn't be 8,000 people groups that have never heard the name Jesus. They don't even know if it's like their neighbor, is, is who's Jesus. They they should know who Jesus is, and it's our job and our role. And, and what we know from, you brought up generations, what we know is that- People are typically generous because their grandparents or parents were. So that discipling and that modeling starts in the home, and this is what just just blows my mind. If you look at the generosity gap um, by uh, the research, um, Barna, is – this is crazy. They surveyed what's the reason for my finances, what is the ultimate financial goal of my life, and uh, when it comes to millennials and Gen Xers, they rated number six. Uh, was serve God with my money. So provide for my family was number one, support the lifestyle I want, uh, give charitably was number five, but serve God with my money, which is the right answer in my opinion. Um, my humble opinion, That's that's the whole point of having money is to serve God and glorify him, was number six out of like 15 options. And we see that Actually, equate to the percentage of U.S. adults who report donating 10% of their income. By millennials, to a church is 1%. To Gen Xers is 2%. And again, it's important that we look at the Boomers as well as the Elders. I mean, there's a 3%, 7%. So it's got worse and worse, and we've become less and less genera- uh, We've become less and less generous by generation. And to me, that's a that's a tragedy.
0: I think one of the things I appreciate most about this book is how you really take uh, the reader deeper into understanding that this is more than just a conversation about giving. At the end of the day, American Christians' understanding of how they earn their living, spending their money, the abundance of possessions, and the accumulation of debt are central to the gospel message. Um, And I, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there, Maybe not necessarily on the facts of that matter, because we could do a whole podcast episode on just how many times the Bible talks about money, and it would shock people um, to look at this. But I wonder for your personal faith journey, how you began to see how money is interwoven in your relationship with Jesus.
1: Mm. Well, the, the person I can speak to was the person I once was, and that person was always worried about money. Um, not having enough, and I've met with people that they didn't have any, but e- you, this affects all income levels. I mean this does not discriminate because of tax bracket. Um, financial worry uh, affects people that have no money or people that have a lot of money, and greed… Um, and the the Bible is not uh, very nice about greed. I mean I, I believe in Ephesians 5 it talks about don't hang out with a, a greedy, a, idolaters, uh, sexually immoral. I, I mean I would be in that list, but I mean without Jesus changing my testimony, my story, that's a person you don't want to hang out with is the person I once was. It was greedy, always worried, always focused on money, always trying to use people to get money. And and it's something I still struggle with today is is that desire for greed because I want to have and, and a lot of people will say, Well, that's not me. Oh well, you would be surprised how it, it it can ease into your life and how you can see signs of this greed. But I, I at least love uh, luckily got brought to my knees very early in my life that I did have a problem with greed is I wanted to Gather as much as I can, and hoard as much as I could, and put it into barns. And this has never been seen as clearly with the the fire movement, the financially independent retire early movement. and at at first glance, it sounds really great to be financially independent. Don't be dependent upon the government. Retire early. And that's not what the Lord called us to is He called us to again, work hard unto himself and take those, Great talents and resources that we've accumulated and use those to go get people. So not using uh, people to get money, but the opposite. Use money to go get people. Go get those unreached people groups, and that's why my charity that I give to uh, that I started was the Luke 1611. Um charity. And that charity is all about uh, that that section in the Bible, Luke sixteen. I love it because it talks about an antihero. Jesus actually uses an antihero as someone to uh, look to. But that shrewd money manager, um if you remember this text, is the one wh- who actually steals from his boss by writing off the bills of the vendors of the boss. And he's using money to prepare for himself after he gets fired. And Jesus says, Look at this. Look at how the um, the unbelievers, the Gentiles, are utilizing money in the most prudent ways. Why aren't, as believers, we're using our money in the most prudent ways to go get more people and go share the gospel with them? And so that's my, my story and my charge to you is are you using your money to go get people? People…
0: Um... You know, as we said before, we'll be shocked about just how much the Bible talks about money. And yet one of the most difficult things for the church to talk about right next to talking about political idolatry and conversations around sexuality and gender roles is money. Why do you think it's especially difficult for the American church to talk
1: about money? um, I, I think because these are hard scriptures to hear because that means we have to die to ourselves. And I've seen people become biblical scholars overnight, and what shocked me, Andy, is that people, even even people that have went to seminary, pastors, have debated me, and they said, Andrew, you know, the the Bible doesn't command us to tithe as New Testament believers. So here we are becoming biblical scholars overnight, trying to talk people out of being generous. And actually, if you Google tithing, one of the first articles will pop up is from a, a Actually, a professor at a seminary that talks about how we shouldn't have to tithe. And I thought, oh, no, this is this is not what you should be putting out into the Web because everyone's looking for a way to do less. Everyone's looking for a way to coast in their faith and just be a consumer. And so we're. I think it's easy. For us to look for a crossless Christianity, one that doesn't ask for much, as Martin Luther says, a religion that doesn't ask for much, that doesn't do much, is not worth much. And we know that the fruit of salvation is this generosity that we should be sharing with others. And so I would say that um, we need to go back to Scripture If people were reading scriptures, they would see how that's incorrect. Um, New Testament talks a lot about tithing and giving. Jesus affirms tithing multiple times when he says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. He looks at the Pharisees and says, don't neglect justice, mercy, but also continue tithing. He looks at the widow and says, look at that. Look at her giving. He doesn't say, hey, we, we don't have to tithe anymore. I'm here. I mean you know where is the Bible – it's really silent because it, it didn't happen. Jesus did not go to the widow and say, here's all your money back. He didn't do that. And, and we know that Paul continued this message of radical generosity speaking to um, the, the Galatians, speaking to Timothy. So we know that the Bible is not silent on radical generosity. you know of,
0: of the many things you cover in the book um you know it's also intended to be a resource for people to help build a a realistic budget take us a little deeper into the wisdom behind the savings and spending pyramid
1: yes this is uh, probably going to get me in trouble because i think budgets are broken i don't believe in budgets i'm anti budget um, I believe that when we follow a budget, it's really operating on our willpower, and most people um will not operate on willpower. It's just like when people say, I, I just started a new diet January first and we know when someone says that they mean, well, I, we hope for them to continue on that, but they're not going to because willpower will break down. And so we have to go back to our priorities, and priorities show what we love, you know if uh, and I tell a story about um, this is a really great story about how Natasha, my wife, I would as I was courting her, I would bring her roses. Um, and while we were dating, she I, she would get roses every week, and she said, "Oh, this is just so sweet of you." And then I finally toured the office with her. She'd never seen where I worked, and so I brought her to where I worked, and she says, "Oh, these are roses on the front uh, desk where the the receptionist." Meets with clients at the first uh, time they come in. And I said, Yeah. And she says, These roses, th- they're not the same roses that you give to me, are they? And she, I I knew I was in trouble at this point, Andy. And I said, Yes, they are, Natasha. They are the, the roses I give. I, I give you the leftovers after every week. And she says, That's really sweet of you. I, I really think it's sweet that you bring me roses every week. But do you mind bringing me different flowers? Someone else's flowers? These are someone else's flowers. Do you mind bringing me, me, you know, for me, flowers? And And that's something I still do today is bring her a different set of flowers than roses because I don't want her to have the leftovers. I want her to have the first of what I give to someone and a a completely different flower type. And it's a small example that that's how we should be with our finances is that we should give to the Lord what is his first. So 10% goes to uh, tithing, goes to the local church. Then 20% goes to long-term investments. And I think especially millennials and Gen Xers, what they're, what we're seeing is, is they're saving, and what I mean by saving is they're delayed spending. They're putting money into a savings account, checking account where they'll spend it later. Now, I'm talking long-term investments that you can't touch till your retirement age. And then the 70% is what we learn to spend on. And then that 70%, we should excel and spending. We should get as much as we can out of that 70% and and the sp- the savings pyramid that I talk about in the book is when I went to school there was this food pyramid that may be out of date now but the food pyramid was it was a good idea that you should have a, a diversified mix of different foods. You shouldn't just eat bread. All day, if, if you, you don't have to. Uh, if you can get some fruits and veggies, that'd be great. Some meat in there, that'd be great. Uh, and the same with your your finances. No one ever sat me down in school and said, you know, it's 10, 20, 70, and here's how you should spend the 70, by the way. And that's what I wanted to give to people because the people that read the giving crisis are very advanced financially. And there's going to be some uh, people that have never been taught finances. They've never been taught the basics in their home by their parents, and I want them to have at least the basics. And even the advanced people, I think, will enjoy seeing the savings pyramid as well.
0: We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe.
1: Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly Podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support.
0: Ministers, um, how do I say this, Uh, are often underpaid and under-resourced. You've got people who've graduated from seminary with a great amount of debt, and then they're working underpaying. Um, underpaid in, in congregations. What what's your advice for for them as as they have families and financial responsibilities that might be overwhelmed with this idea of of a generous reality?
1: Mm-hmm. I I think many times people will ask, you know, do I tithe if I make a little money? If I tithe if I can barely make ends meet. Um, what I love about how the Lord has set up things is it's not like a standard flat tithe that he's asking us to be obedient with, he says 10%. So whatever I make, and if I'm a bio-vocational pastor, um, whatever I receive, um, I should be doing 10, 20, and 70, 70. And it's very difficult, especially when you're not making a lot. I mean, when you make a lot, it's it's a lot more forgiving um, because you have more 70% to work with. Um, so I would tell them that, um, uh, again, I think it's an honor to serve and shepherd, and there's nothing wrong with being vocational for many to make ends meet and for their spouse to work. And we see that with Paul, who's making tents as well as building up the local church. Um, And I think it's important for pastors to just follow that 10, 20, 70 formula, even when it's not easy. And as long as we're not, you know, many times people say just you know give. Uh, in faith. Just step out and leap in faith. I think that's that's great. We should step out in faith. But um, I also think that we shouldn't test God with our spending. I think most people are not testing God with their tithes. They're testing God with their spending. And so uh, what I would do is I would journal your expenses over the next week. Take a journal with you, and every time you are about to spend money, write it down. Say, hey, I'm going to buy this snicker bar. Great. I'm going to write that down before I buy it. If we did that every time we had a little small uh, pocketbook in our back pocket and we would journal our expenses or write it in Google Keep on our cell phone what we spent money on for the last week, we'd be shocked at how much we spend frivolously because I I'd, many times people say, how could you do it? I said, well, just if I if I could, if I could walk around with people for a week, I could find where they're spending money frivolously, and, and they can too. They just have to journal their expenses, and they'll see where they're spending money frivolously.
0: Let's talk about generosity, um, which is ultimately you know, the the goal of this book. You wrote, the more grateful you are, the more generous you'll be. Gratitude is what you breathe in. Generosity is what you breathe
1: out. Take us a little deeper there. When I think about this, I, I automatically go to Zacchaeus. I see someone that was tall, uh, not tall in stature, but short in stature. Someone that was, unlike the rich young ruler, You know, he was in the back of the crowd, climbing the tree to just get a look at Jesus. And and I love where Jesus looks at him, calls him by name. I mean, just such powerful scripture there. And he comes down to the tree and salvation comes to his house. And so here's this overwhelming gratitude that he who has cheated a lot of people out of money is getting a second chance to be born again to follow and actually introduce people to Jesus. Um, And what's his response? Overwhelming generosity. He says, I got to give away half my income. I got to do it. I got to pay back people four times as much as I I stole from them. I have to make it right. And that should be our response as believers. And and if we've grown cold and our hearts uh, grown hardened and our ears are Filled and and not wanting to hear this, we need to go back to the day of salvation, and the day of salvation says I am a wretched sinner. I, I don't deserve anything that I have, and I don't deserve the 90% that he's not asking of me. So whatever I can give that I can take care of the food and clothing for my family besides those mandatory things, even that – I mean he said if you follow me, you might not have anything to put your head on a, a pillow. I mean, that's what Jesus was very upfront is you're potentially going to have to leave everything. And if that bothers you and you're challenged by that, then you need to lean into that challenge because I would get curious when I'm uncomfortable. And so every time when people say, you know, he didn't ask everyone to leave everything. No, he didn't. But he did ask a lot of them to, he asked a lot of disciples to. And what an what an honor and 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 that that would be to leave everything for Christ. I mean, the look at what Peter said. Peter said, "We left everything for you," and, and Jesus says, "Yeah, you did." And there's a hundredfold return, and and in investments, uh, you don't have to be in investing and in finance to understand that a hundredfold return is a great return on your talents, resources, and your finances.
0: You know, there's so much in this book. And there's so much um, that it has to offer as far as, um, you know, practically living out. You know, for somebody who's wanting to, kind of start right, <laughs> uh, finding a place to kind of begin. What, what's your first uh, steps of, of recommendations?
1: Sure. The first thing I go to is, can I see your tax return? And your tax refund last year. What we know statistically is most people actually blow their tax refund, um, and what they're doing is they're overpaying the government. They get a big tax refund on the back end, and then when anyone gets a windfall, a lottery, an inheritance, a uh, tax refund, it is spent frivolously. The statistics show that. So what I tell people is, all right, you got a $4,000 tax return, uh, tax refund from your tax return last year. Why don't we do this? Instead of you getting a four thousand dollars tax refund next year, let's do a tax withholding change of three hundred dollars, and we, let's start dedicating that to the Lord. It, it's so true that we all need a spending plan. You know, those who uh, failed to plan or plan to fail. They're going to have failure because they haven't laid out their spending. So we need to lay out our spending. Um, that's not a budget. We're not going to, you know, take every dollar and, and categorize it. We don't have to do that. We just have to see where our money is going to go with that ten, twenty, and seventy. And then the other advice I would tell you is look for fixed payments that are tied to your income. And I'll give you a great example of this. If you have a thirty-year mortgage and it costs you two thousand dollars a month and that $2000 mortgage is going to stay the same for the next 15 or 30 years depending on your mortgage cuz it's called simple interest. So your mortgage is the same as it will be for the next 20 years. Now your taxes and insurance will change, but the actual principal and interest of your income will change it will not change. It'll be static. So if you if your mortgage is uh, 20% of your income, that's what it's going to be for the next 10 to 20 years. But here's what won't happen. If you don't set your income to your mortgage, as your income increases, what people do is as their income increases, they don't actually put more onto the mortgage. They spend the difference. They get a boat. They get a new car. What I encourage families to do is say, all right, we're going to lock in that 20% is as much as we're going to put towards our income. And As our income increases, I'm going to take that little bit of increase, which will be very small in the beginning, and I'm going to put that towards giving more. So if you're tithing 10% and you lock in the rate of what your mortgage is compared to your income, as your income increases, what I would do is pay the same mortgage payment, but I would increase the giving. And if someone does that, we show this in the book that someone can increase their uh, tithing by nearly like 5 to 8% in just a decade's time. And I think that's awesome when people that are giving 10% give 15 People that are giving 15% start to give 20% of their income. And that is just a few little tangible ways that you can increase your giving uh, really quickly. Our guest
0: is Andrew McNair. The book is The Giving Crisis. You can stay connected with Andrew by visiting richyoungpowerful.com. Andrew, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for inviting us to shift out of a giving crisis and to become the giving generation.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to come on anytime. Thank you.
0: This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.